Let us remember that if this financial crisis taught us anything, it's that we cannot have a thriving Wall Street while Main Street suffers. In this country, we rise or fall as one nation, as one people. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Laura Conaway. Adam Davidson is out working on the next installment of that big story about the Wisconsin school districts. You remember, they're the ones who put like $200 million to, well, not really to great use, let's just say, in the uh, Wall Street world. It's Wednesday, November 5th. It's about 4.17 p.m. here in New York City. We've got a very, very cool show today. We're going to get a surprising take on how Barack Obama won the presidential election, and we're going to hear your ideas for fixing the economy, your letters to the incoming president. But first, it's Dan Costello. He's with me in the studio. Dan, can you tell me something about this this TED spread? You blogged something today saying basically the end of Mm -hmm. TED spread. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, some of the optimists on Wall Street say that there's a glimmer of hope there. And if you look at things like the LIBOR, which is a fancy way of saying the interest rate that banks charge each other for. What's it stand for, LIBOR? The London Interbank Ex- I'm going to get this Offered one. Offered rate. Offered rate. Yes. I always do that incorrectly. <laughs> but anyways, it's it's just a uh, an interest rate that people look to. Uh, and, and by the way, the trillions of dollars of student loans and mortgages and credit cards that died too. So this is a very important number. They all hang on LIBOR. They all hang on LIBOR. Many people who are listening to this, their loans are LIBOR plus 2 or 3%. So if LIBOR goes down, you, your interest rates go down. That has fallen uh, for the 16th straight day. It is now at its lowest level since June. So that should translate into good things for the market. And it should mean that the TED spread would go down because LIBOR is one of the things that makes up the TED spread. And the TED spread is the difference between the LIBOR and the interest rate, what we get for T-bills. And so people look at that spread as an indication of how healthy the market is. But you're most interested in LIBOR. Every, I'm interested in LIBOR. I mean, I think that is the interest rate that is tied to trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of loans around the world. So we called Will Aston Reese of Tradition Asia. He's one of our favorite money market traders. And we said, you know, hey, LIBOR is going down. I think it's more a functionality of the swap market and uh, rather than any type of uh, saturation of money in those particular periods. Does that mean that it'll eventually that it, this will eventually spread into the money market or that this might just not be a proxy well, of good things to come? Well, you know, my, my point about, uh, first of all, LIBOR is an artificially pegged rate. Um, it's, it's really not indicative. I made the comment all this week that you could have one month, two months, and three months money being bid for 10%. In other words, you could have banks out there willing to pay 10% for this money. But because people are so afraid of taking term counterparty risk with these banks, they're still not going to get any money. So, I I mean, if you apply the logic to the upside that banks paying 10% aren't going to get money, why would LIBOR rallying going lower indicate that banks are getting money? uh, To me, it it, it doesn't. Uh, So... Uh, you know, maybe there's stuff out there happening that that uh, I'm just not seeing, and there's flows going on that I'm just not seeing. But I sit here and I scratch my head every day as to why the market appears to be rallying with absolutely very little real, real trading occurring. Is there anything out there that gives you a glimmer of hope, and what would it be? Um, 
You know, yeah, oddly there is because I'm hearing people talking about things, and eventually I would think that talking about it is going to give way to the reality of doing it. But, I, I mean, I have the same conversations day in and day out with the same guys, not buying bank names. They are buying asset-backed commercial paper because of the put feature to the Fed, and they are buying some very limited industrial names, usually AAA names, usually direct issuer, um, because of the, they believe that the counterparty risk is nil. But <laughs> I'm just not seeing the bank names trading. Well, Laston Reese, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Cool. Take care. Have a great day. See ya. All right. Well, Laston Reese, looking for hope. If you follow our blog, we're at npr.org slash money. You may have seen a post earlier today by this guy, Robert Benincasa. He works over at NPR in Washington, and he sent us a chart from Tuesday's election. What it showed was Democrat Barack Obama gaining ground in the suburbs and exurbs. Obama did better this year than John Kerry did in 2004 in those places, especially where you're a ring or two removed from cities, the kinds of places that are tending to grow up very quickly, people throwing up houses and moving there very quickly. Robert Lang of Virginia Tech's Metropolitan Institute sees clear reasons for voters out there changing their positions. I mean, this is where even before the problems on Wall Street, even before Lehman Brothers, even before, you know, the, the sort of pivotal point in this election in September, the meltdown on the markets, there was a sense in some of these suburbs of a slide. And part of it is that, you know, they're affected by, house, by gas prices because these are places where you have more distant commutes typically. And the, and the gas prices actually fed into the declining house value because they became harder places to reach. So if somebody was doing a mortgage calculation and said, well, you know, maybe what I'll do is I'll buy a bigger house at the edge and I'll, you know, just drive more. Uh, well, when you throw the drive more into the mix, suddenly the price of energy really factored in and it kind of undermined the value in these places. And this was this new heartland for the Republicans. This is the way they were going to fight it out in metropolitan areas. They count on a very strong rural vote and they don't expect to win anything at the center of a metropolitan area, but they stayed competitive by winning the space in the, you know, the kind of edges of the region. One of the things that economists talk about, I'm very new to economics, but I'm reading as fast as I can and talking to as many people as I can. And one of the things they talk about a lot is life at the margins. You know, if you can't afford to be in the center of something, then you go to the next level out. And it sounds like what you're talking about is a kind of economic die-off or fear or something at the margin. And then the margin, the people on the margin, physically on the margin of the map, may have noticed it first. Yeah, and this is a place where you see foreclosures and, and you see, you know, this old notion of what was, what was called driving till you qualified. You know, you couldn't afford it at the center, so you got in a car and you drove till you could buy a place or rent a place. Uh, and you were, in a sense, the most vulnerable. And you were especially vulnerable if transportation costs went up. And they did. And then people who might have bought your house couldn't buy it because their transportation costs went up. And so you would vote for a candidate who addressed an issue like change. And then that's what Barack Obama did. He ran his campaign. He ended his campaign in Manassas Park, Manassas, Virginia. And he won it. I've checked the, you know, the results. This is a county, uh, Prince William, that he won. This is a, you know, a independent city, as they call them, Virginia, that he won. He understood that you, know, you don't go to Winchester, Virginia, way out there in the Shenandoah Valley, and you don't go to Arlington, Virginia, which is already in the tank for you. You, you fight it out in this kind of space where you can see the immediate pain. I think it's interesting that you bring up this issue of mortgages and foreclosures because 
It seemed to me that one of the things we heard a lot from the McCain campaign was talk about helping homeowners with mortgages. He's very direct about it. He did. And what the problem for McCain in that one specific area is it's not just that you offer solutions. It's that you offer solutions that seem to be based on a kind of larger strategy. And McCain was throwing out stuff. And for example, on that mortgage program, he modified it several times on the fly. And I think it struck a lot of people as kind of half-baked. So let's say, for the sake of argument, that that there is, in fact, a causal relationship between this problem of high commuting cost and falling home values and, and spike in foreclosures in this ring of suburbia that's a little bit removed, that's out on the margin. Let's say that there is a causal link between that and those people voting for Obama, saying that, that we're going to buy the message of change. What do you think can be done to help those areas? I mean, what is America going to do with all these places that you have to drive so far to? I mean, what? Are, what? How are they going to fix this? Uh, changing energy technology, investing in infrastructure so that you have commuter rail and transit systems out to these places. And that's something, by the way, you know, of course we're in a, in a, in a situation where we're running deficits, and the deficits we're running are substantial. But in relative terms to the situation the country faced after World War II, after it had paid for a war and having been in the Depression 10 years prior to that, and deficit spent in, in that recession, we're not in that bad a shape as far as how much debt we have accumulated compared to how large our, our gross national product is. You sound like, at least on this priority of how to fix the, the outer suburbs, that you, you sound very much like you're thinking is in line with Obama's. Well, it's not so much that it's in line with Obama's. It's that Obama has captured uh, a discussion that has gone on among people who are doing urban planning around the world uh, about which which countries are investing and which are not investing. In, in the other context here is that the U.S. is growing. It's going to add 100 million residents between 2006 and 2039. The census most recently improved or, or shifted the year from four, 2043 to 2039, actually accelerated the point at which we'd reached that. No other country in the developed world has anything like that sort of growth. That's like adding more than all of Germany to the United States, the biggest European Union nation. And mostly, about 85% of that goes into the country's metropolitan area. So it's going to be layered atop already densely built places. And in that discussion, you know, the U.S. is seen as uh, kind of lagging in terms of this investment uh, compared to developing countries like China or even places that are, you know, mature like Europe. And you think that lag may have cost McCain some votes out there? I think the general sense of decline in the fact that, you know, anybody who saw the, the Olympics and the kind of infrastructure that China's building, like right now, China's share of the, the developed space that they have is smaller than the U.S., and they have rural areas that are, uh, you know, kind of still in need of all kinds of improvements, and they're building an entire interstate system and high-speed rail. But if you take the space they've already improved, it's actually at a higher grade than the the U.S. If you keep expanding that, at some point, you know, there are more developed countries than the United States. We're right now debating a rail out to our, from our national capital to its, uh, to its, its leading international airport at Dulles Airport. In China, they have a 12-minute, you know, maglev from, you know, Shanghai uh, airport to city center. Uh, they're, not, they're not debating these kinds of things. That was Robert Lang with the news from Exerbia. Now, I want to turn to a special production. It's a collaboration between our own Caitlin Kenny, who produces this podcast and makes it possible every day, 
It's a collaboration between Caitlin and you, the Planet Money listeners. We asked for your letters to President-elect Obama for your ideas about what he should do to help the economy. Dear Mr. President, come take a walk with me. Dear President Obama, my hope is that when you leave office in eight years, our national debt will be smaller than it is when you took office. My hope is that you can find a way to balance investments in energy, education, and infrastructure with the principle that if government continues to spend more than it takes in, it will eventually lead to ruin. My hope is that once now the election is over, you will come to realize that going line by line through the budget is a good start, but it will not get us where we need to go. Our country... Dear President Obama, consumer spending must be addressed. If we lose economies of scale, more businesses will fall, just like the automakers. I suggest Keynesian deficit spending on, infra- on infrastructure. We need a new electrical grid to pump renewable energy to our homes. We need to build wind turbines and solar cells and we need new bridges and roads and railroads. This would create jobs and help consumer spending by putting money into people's hands. The mortgage crisis needs to be addressed. The financial crisis won't end until the underlying turbulence is stabilized. Problems like rampant foreclosure, excessive housing inventory... Dear President Obama, please look beyond the greed and single-mindedness of most people in power to see a few key things. Bigger is not better. Big insurance companies big banks, big central government. Encourage less regulations, clean up the overgrown legal system. We continually add laws but rarely remove them. Encourage ways small business can network together and work together. Ultimately, the strong central government fears of the founding fathers have been realized. 50 state Dear President Obama, uh, two points that you will have to do uh, once you uh, become president, right? Uh, You will have to continue pushing fiscal and monetary policies in order to get the economy moving again. Hopefully, a more balanced growth in infrastructure and tangible investment will emerge instead of growth that is purely uh, reliant on financial instruments and consumption. And the second mini point I have to make um, is that uh, as president, you will have to set up a system uh, fairly quickly to refinance loans uh, that prevent outright foreclosure and keep people in their homes, or at least... Dear President Obama... As far as the economy goes, we have a horrible deficit that needs to be addressed. In the long run, we need to decrease spending and we need to increase revenues. It's basic math. I think the tax plan needs a major rewrite and small fixes now only lead to more broken policies to fix later. I'm looking at you, AMT. I think businesses need to pay more taxes and I think we should tax spending instead of income. We need to spend our money more efficiently, especially when it comes to health care programs. I am dumbfounded that we can spend gajillions every year in the budget and still have an atrociously underperforming education system, no real plan on how to move forward with foreign relations, and an unanswered prayer to fix the health system. We need a balanced budget. It's ludicrous to ask the American people to get their financial house in order when the federal finances are even more out of whack. Irresponsible credit has torpedoed our economy, and assuming that same line of thinking on the national level is asking for trouble. I understand we'll need to deal with it in the short term, but we need a long-term plan, and we need to start working towards that plan immediately. Thank you. Sincerely, Megan Barbado. Joe Veneration. Thane J. Tang. Stephen Gutnick. 
AJ Spotka. Thank you all so much for sending in those letters. Y'all are just the best. It is a pleasure to watch them roll in, and Caitlin says the tape was just fabulous to hear. You can find more letters from listeners, like-minded and not, at npr.org slash money. Dan Costello, thank you for being here today. Thank you. Always a pleasure. For now, we're going to call that a day on Planet Money. I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.